Welcome to episode 100 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have John Bieber. He's a writer and former international divorce lawyer. After a distinguished career as a UK lawyer, formerly with the celebrated Lord Goodman, and later with his own law firm, John Bieber left full-time legal work to focus on family life with his wife, Joey, and four young children in their farm in the heart of Sussex, England, where he could pursue his passion for writing. Uh, John Bieber's perception of the human condition was shaped over decades of witnessing love end. This led John to construct a philosophy that has helped him to live and love in a way all people desire. His newest book, Am I Loved? The Human Essence, explores this philosophy and much more. Welcome, John. Thank you so much. Thank you. Absolutely. And thank you so much for coming on. And so, John, can you tell us a little bit about your professional background and how it relates to the book? Yes, it's uh, it's curious really for a divorce lawyer to write a, a book on love, but mm -hmm. that's what I, because I saw so many people making a mess of their divorces, having made a, an awful mess of their marriages, mm -hmm. and uh, I just could not work out why, when they came to have to make decisions, obviously emotionally they were incapable of doing so, and further paradox was that when they were emotion when they were actually married they were emotionally divorced and the minute they got divorced they became emotionally married and uh, i felt what a waste what a silly waste because the children obviously suffered more than anybody else and if you could untie the knot why cut it and so that led me on to um a, a concern for the emotional side because nobody seemed to have addressed it before and so i wrote a book called if divorce is the only way which was published by Penguin, which helped an enormous amount of people. And then thereafter, I, I, I dwelt on emotions because I thought like everyone else that you could just switch them off and that was it. And I said in the book, you must get rid of your negative emotions, but it's mm -hmm. not that simple. Mm -hmm. It actually has taken me 15 years to work it all out. And that is in the book, Am I Loved? Could I just say the subtitle is the most asked question of all time. Yes. And, um, I wanted to uh, address that actually. Uh, why? Why do you feel uh, love is is the most important? We're asking, "Am I loved?" is the most important question. Well, it is. When you get to the end of the book, you'll see why. But love is the absolute glue that just binds society and binds us to families and everything we we actually identify with. But equally, it's our need to be loved, which is our paramount need, greater than any other need in the world. It's possible to be just a call for someone to love us, but we can only function and I believe achieve happiness if we are loved. And that is the essence of the, of the whole concept. If you are loved, you feel fulfilled. If you are not loved, it's the greatest source of human misery. And so what were some of your experiences like as a divorce attorney? Who were the couples and what sort of, I guess, <laughs> what, sort of, what sort of problems or kind of strife or, uh, I mean, yeah, what kind of strife? And I guess, what are some of the good moments that they had during those proceedings? Uh, I don't know how you define a good moment. It's all a mm. very sad time. Um, I mm. don't think there are any good moments. In, it's a bumpy ride for everybody because psychologically it is impossible to readjust and suddenly find yourself alone. And obviously having to share custody with another spouse when you actually parted is very difficult indeed. Having to have their parents and their family at family parties must be ghastly. And it's, it's just terribly sad. I don't think there are any good moments. My job was to try to make it as pain-free as possible, uh, which I hope to do by simply saying, let's not fight over 10% that we can't actually confidently say can be attributed to one or the other because the costs normally eat that up. And if you take that view and you think the children 
must be paramount, and I'm in fact dedicated my divorce book to the children, then I think it's much easier to proceed and you get a far, far gentler and more sensible and lasting result. Because no. what we have to do is preserve relations between the parties and their families for as long as you can. And what are some of the common sources of divorce? Oh, I think people grow apart. I think with this lock, we've had lockdowns in England. I imagine you have obviously yeah, in the States. So many people have just found they just did not want to spend the rest of their lives with someone mm. they were locked within a little apartments and they couldn't get out. It's it's just too sad. And and that I think people just grow apart. I mean, you can have people married for 50 years and they grow apart, but it's very common. And after I found in divorce, after 12 years, there is the seven year itch, but I think it's the 12th year when things start falling apart. Why 12? Why, why do you think that that's such a special year or number? It's so funny. I also had another number, which was 38, which mm -hmm. was the average age of the women I acted for, who all said, I'll never get married again. And every single one was married within two years. Wow. <laughs> that's just that's just human nature, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I noticed in the book, you talk about a, a way to sort of manage our emotions, that, that our emotions come from nature's desire, our genes desire uh, to, um, to be interested in our survival, right? That our emotions don't necessarily care about um, anything but our survival. And they're these sort of uncontrollable things. Could you talk about maybe um, how can we sort of learn to manage them knowing that they don't care about, you know, our conscious will and desire to control them? Yeah, well, th this, I must say, you are saying it's our genes and desire. That is not right. They're inanimate. They, they don't have a desire. But what, yes. they, what is very important is that nature has given us certain protections, which he hasn't given to the rest of creation. And those protections are our emotions, our capacity to love, and above all, our need to be loved. And so that's how we function because the only reason she's given us this is because she wants us to pass life on to the next generation. For some reason, that is the purpose of life. Nobody understands why, but that is it. Right. She just wants us to, to, doesn't care who she we mate with, and we pass it on. And so if you proceed in that basis, you'll see that our emotions respond to the needs of our genes to survive, not to our best interests as we would perceive them. And that obviously creates massive complications because we can't control our emotions. We don't understand them. And that's where I say in the book, maybe slightly immodestly, that everyone has got it wrong. I mean, right back to the first Cro-Magnon men and women, they've mm -hmm. got it wrong. And what I've tried to do in this book is to get it right. And I think I've set out my understanding of the human condition, which is not simple. And I think um, it actually... It does work. It is, I think, the right thing. And that's what my love is all about. Mm. And so what do we mean by the concept of love here? Sorry, I've got a plane going over. Forgive me. Sorry, yes, I can hear you now. Yeah, so what do we mean by the concept of love here? I'm so sorry. Oh, interesting. The oh, concept uh, of love. Yeah, yeah. yeah mm -hmm. uh, uh, well, love. Yeah. Okay, well, my own definition of love is incredibly simple. It is simply the gauging and supply of another's needs. And I, I challenge anyone to say that doesn't work. If you get into a relationship and you worry about them, they worry about you, you're off and running. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. So it's like, so the idea is it's like kind of a, a sort of a, a level of empathy. Is that it? 
It is. It's a trait, yeah. actually, mm. a trait, because nature has another thing, which I've called the trick. And that is that we think that we understand what love is, but actually she makes sex terribly attractive. And I've called it the greatest carrot in creation. And we're just donkeys because mm. we just follow that lead and then we start procreating. And that's all she wants us to do. So that's so interesting, because how do we then not get confused by the difference between lust and love? We don't. We do get confused. Yeah, yeah. That's the mm. And that's the trouble, but lust is not love. You know, when you see somebody for the first time across a crowded ball, a, a, a nightclub or something, and you think, oh, that's nice, that is not love. Mm -hmm. That is lust. And lust doesn't lead to love. And that's the point. You, you have to take care. You know, love is the only emotion we have that is one you can actually choose to bestow or withhold. Mm -hmm. And I think people must give their love very cautiously because it's too easy to do and then everything goes wrong. You know, mm -hmm. when you give your heart to somebody, it doesn't last and there's going to be great misery. You must get everything right first. Right. So how many people would you say tend to, oh, I mean, it's obviously hard to quantify, but how many people do you think percentage-wise actually get married? It's kind of confusing the two, lust for love. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't put a figure on that, but too many, mm. far too many. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, I got, I got, can I just say, somebody reviewed my book, um, a wonderful review I got yesterday. Mm. And um, they say, because they're actually 88 years old, and they, they said that they can look at their grandchildren's generation and people don't know what love is anymore. And they simply confuse it with sex. Mm -hmm. And that's the shocking indictment of a whole generation. And she actually said, if just one person reads the book and gets it right, that would be wonderful. Right. <laughs> that's what I like about your book, though. You you create this sort of distinction between lust and, and true love. And then being yes. able to recognize in yourself when, you're, uh, sort of, when your emotions are operating from a sort of selfish place, uh, it lets you be um, self-aware, right? And, and be aware of the times that you're sort of being controlled by your emotions in yeah. a sense yeah so what i like about that is it sort of uh it lets you operate from a different sort of paradigm right whereas before you're automatically being driven by your emotions you still are right even with this knowledge you, you still are right but i like that it gives you this sort of awareness this way there's maybe more of a there's a certain percentage of the time you'll uh, succumb to them mm -hmm some i could put it that way yeah, yeah. yeah. yes and yes sorry no, no go ahead john no, i have nothing to say please, please. <laughs> yeah so i was going to ask so in terms of i guess once um one sort of emotions right how do we sort of understand emotions then in terms of our own benefit right what sort of purpose do they serve for us why are they there well, easily that they, they they serve to protect our genes mm -hmm. which means that they are protecting the life within us and it's as simple as that. They just don't want us to go and get run over or something. And therefore we're cautious. And obviously if there are little irritations in life, this is one thing that you react to possibly without wanting to, possibly without even thinking about it. And that is a genuine emotion. Mm -hmm. And when we say, oh yes, but that was for the stone age times when things were really dangerous living and, and, and existing in a community where people used to just sacrifice each other and get killed by the next door neighbor. Mm -hmm. That's the point. That's when you know that the same emotion is actually working for you. So you don't get run over. And you may say, think it's primitive, but it's actually it does work and it proves that it works mm. because you don't get run over. And uh, that's how emotions are. 
but you can't control them. You can't necessarily understand them, although I hope we will better after my book, but you can manage your reaction to them by, for example, masking sadness or, or dismay and, and not and actually dealing with it that way. Mm -hmm. But the emotion comes before you realize it. It comes on its own volition, hits you between the eyes, and it's like having a different being in your body. You can't actually imagine that it would happen. You can't anticipate it, and you can't control it when it does. Right. And from your understanding, what's the purpose of jealousy? Oh, mm. I don't think it has a purpose. A very negative emotion indeed. Mm -hmm. Maybe to, to warn somebody that um, someone's going off with their wife, but I don't know. I don't think it has a purpose that should be um, that actually benefits us. I don't know. I've never actually thought of that, but I can't see that there's a benefit because it's like pointing at someone. You've got three fingers pointing back at you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, but the interesting thing I also think about jealousy is that sometimes it actually warns you and it warns you correctly, where the person that, you know, you think are accused of cheating on you is actually cheating on you. So, I mean, I think for a lot of people, jealousy is probably overblown. I mean, I think usually it's overblown, uh, but there are some times when it's actually right. So, you know how like human beings are often, uh, there's this concept of intermittent reinforcement, where all you need is a couple of sort of uh, a couple of times or experiences where you're right in order to continue the bad behavior. Well, I mean, I guess it's not bad overall. But in terms of like, you know, kind of overreacting or accusing your partner of cheating. So the idea is even if you're right, like maybe 2% of the time or something like that, you're still going to continue in that behavior. So it's like, I can imagine jealousy being reinforced over it. I mean, maybe one's lifetime is a little bit too, uh, too extreme, but let's say over even the span of several years. But what about the other 98%? That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's it. That's I mean, yeah, yeah, that's that's the interesting thing about being human. It's like for us, for whatever reason, we don't have a really good way of seeing the bigger picture. So we tend to think of the times that we're right instead of obviously the times when we're wrong. So I can so even like so I'm a psychotherapist and I could tell you a million times where my clients were like, well, yeah, every time you know I was jealous of you know my I was right, my boyfriend or whomever cheated on me, and I'm like, every time you were jealous, you found out that you were right, and then they're like, okay, fine, maybe not every time, and then you know as you go through the thinking with them. Just like when people say, um, you know, nobody's ever told me. I had a client tell me the other day. She's like, you know, no one's ever told me that they loved me. I was like, no one ever told you that they loved you ever. And then she's like, no. And I'm like, really? I find that really hard to believe. And then she's like, okay, fine. Maybe someone told me that they love me. So I think people, in order to kind of sustain their initial beliefs, they find out, they call this mental filtering, where they kind of, their brains automatically look for evidence to support their belief. So um, yeah, with the intermittent reinforcement, the idea is in order to kind of sustain our belief that, oh, well, jealousy works and we were always right, right? We'll easily find the evidence for it as opposed to finding the counterexamples. Well, then the proper answer to your question is that it's obviously a negative emotion that's there to support us and, and save us and save us from harm. So, yeah. yeah, unless it's abused, I suppose it does find out the truth. Uh, but it, it's obviously not, uh, as you say, it may be 2% of the time, probably not 98 and until damage can be when you have um, a jealous spouse and they actually have no reason to be jealous. It still destroys the relationship. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think we can even say from kind of personal experiences that we've even had moments like that where uh, we've had kind of negative emotional reactions to potential, well, not potential, to partners that we were with. And um, yeah. And it's like now looking back on it as we're older, right? It's like, no, for sure. Yeah. I've definitely found myself projecting at times when nothing was going on. But then as I kept projecting and projecting and projecting, 
sort of imposing that reality, sort of crafting that identity for mm-hmm. because I'm telling her I'm jealous and all that, then it actually becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Totally. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's 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 uh, it's not very good to be to be jealous. I mean, unless you, I suppose you have an actual reason to that two percent of the time that you might be yeah. correct. Yeah. 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 And it, it's definitely there, part of our psyche and makeup to protect us. I think we have to say that, but it mustn't be abused. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say that, right, that it's part of our psyche, because I was going to ask you, what do you think are like the barriers to actual legitimate intimacy? Right. What sort of um, what are sort of, I guess, some of the psychological, uh, I guess, sort of walls or whatever that people put up in order to kind of, I guess, to protect themselves and to really preclude themselves from feeling loved? It's for you're the psychotherapist. <laughs> I'm just the writer. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, could you maybe talk about um, what the superior sense is and, and how does that sort of uh, function? The supreme sense. Yes. Yes. That, that, is, fast, that is the climax of Am I Love? Um, you, have, you have your emotions. And to gauge whether you're surviving, we have the supreme sense, which means simply, very simply, that the emotions are gauged by reference to the, whether uh, to the, its effect on our need to be loved. So if we don't feel loved, they're negative, it's not worth, it's not good. And if we do feel loved, well, then it's very positive. And this is the question that's asked every single time we have an emotional reaction. Am I loved? And that's where I got the title to the book. Uh, and that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, and I noticed you you draw a distinction in the book as well between the question of am I surviving versus uh, am I loving? Totally. Um, could, could you uh, please provide like, what is the distinction between oh, uh, both questions? There's, okay, there's a massive, massive, massive one. Am I surviving leads to an emotional cul-de-sac because it involves a sterile state of loving oneself. And I think if you look at, I think the vast majority of people, they are surviving. And that's why there's so much misery in the world. That's why you look at blank faces and and it's really sad. And they also you find that these bankers and people like that who never stop working, neglect their family, all they want to do is to survive. Right. So you have a choice in life. Am I surviving or am I loved? And if the people say, am I surviving? They're going nowhere. If I am loved, it means that you're full of a, a, a loving relationship. You're lovable. You can be loved and you love others and people love you, which is all that we want. And, and that is the big, big difference. But I think that to say, am I surviving? And think that is what all that life is about is the saddest, saddest thing. It's a negation of all the beauty that we've got that actually nature gave us. And if I could just add another thing, we always say in England uh, through ten, Lord Tennyson, a, a poet from the 19th century, nature is red in tooth and claw. But in fact, what we have when we say, we blame it all on nature. We don't know. We don't understand our emotions. We haven't actually got to the stage which I developed in my love, which is that we have an identity of interest with nature because she wants us to survive. She wants us to pass our genes on and we very much want to live. And so that's how the supreme sense reconciles the two. We are not imperfect beings, which we thought we were because we've got emotions we don't understand. We're actually now on a course where we can actually say, am I loved, and find out if we are. If we're not, then we're doing something wrong or very unfortunate, we must work at it. But if we are loved, then that is the best thing possible. And it's also what nature wants us to do, because if I am loved by someone, they're looking out for me, I'm looking out for them. 
life is protected better than it was before. Mm. And how do people then come to deviate from that path? Like, why would somebody become a workaholic instead of, I guess, uh, maybe abiding by, maybe not the greatest term, but let's say somebody abiding by nature's law, right? Somebody sort of look, living in a way of accordance or in accordance to human nature. Well, I think they're just, it's very human indeed. They're, they're, they're trying to make a success of their life as they see it, but mm. it gets to a stage where that success becomes actually destructive. I mean, there are a lot of cases I, I know from practice where, People say in law firms, do nothing but work all the time, round the clock. Mm -hmm. And by the time they've made a fortune at 50 and people are thinking they'll retire or go on to something else, their wives left them. They're still paying school fees and they're ruined. So what's the point? Yeah, it seems like a lot of people have that mindset of I'll be happy when, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. When I when I get the job, when I make this much money, when I re when I reach retirement, when this condition is met, that condition is met. And it's it's like you're teaching your brain to never be happy now, right? Not to yep. love yourself now, right? Well, in and the word of it, seize the moment. <laughs> yeah, and so John, do you think oh. that for a lot of people who are workaholics that they're doing so because they want to or they're trying to make themselves lovable at some point? No, no, I don't think lovable comes into it. I think they're just there after a while pursuing their own interests. Mm -hmm. And it's terribly, terribly sad. They they work. I see people, they work round the clock. When I was in practice, we didn't. I mean, we didn't need to. Mm -hmm. We worked very hard, but we still had a family life. Yeah. Why would then somebody get married if they're a workaholic? I suppose sometimes they like a trophy wife. Sometimes they like a good cook and a housekeeper. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they feel this is the right thing and they are in love, but it doesn't endure because they don't actually give love. They take it. Yeah. Well, it's sort of like they're living out um, a beaten path or running the rat race, you know, because society will uh, give you certain roles that you can take, mm -hmm. right? There's there's the beaten path and then other people, you know, live their own way. Mm -hmm. But most people will take the beaten path, right? And yeah. they think, okay, I need the job. I need to go to, uh, I need to go to school, university, uh, get the wife, have children. And they're just meeting this, the demands of society, right. but not really living life through their own fresh set of eyes, right? Mm -hmm. They're, they're just trying to gain value, but from a selfish sort of uh, point yeah. of view. Yeah. Yes. Whether those people would understand my books, another matter, whether they'd be interested in changing their lives, I can't say, but it's, it shows an alternative, which I think is very much more fulfilling. Yeah. But I mean, it's interesting because if the person who's saying to themselves, you know, I'm going to like leave this kind of lifestyle when I'm 50 years old, I mean, there has to be some awareness there, no? Well, yes, it may well be, but they'll find that everything that they want has disappeared on the way. Right. And it's a hollow achievement. Yeah. Also, I think we would be surprised just how many people, how people rationalize their decisions in order to feel comfortable with their emotionally motivated actions. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. So. Yeah, I mean, if somebody has spent their life, quote unquote, living the wrong way, just uh, just about survival, taking, thinking of just their their own needs, not the needs of others, uh, they're probably going to, you know, even if they have some sort of awareness, they'll probably rationalize why they have lived their life up to that point the way they did. Right. Otherwise, you'd have to uh, think that you're wrong about everything and it would turn your it would uh, make your whole world go into disarray. Right. And you'd have to be, I suppose, very strong-willed. I, I, this is me guessing. I'm just speculating. You'd have to be very strong-willed to decide to 
uh, all of a sudden look at life uh, a different way, yeah. right? Um, and then also just to add to that, I would even think that if a person is um, telling themselves, oh, well, I'm going to retire at 50, they might just be lying to themselves too. They might just be telling themselves, well, yeah, you know, I know the meaning of life, yada, yada. I understand, you know, the sort of true values, but, uh, but they're lying to themselves. They don't actually truly mean that. They might mm -hmm. be just telling themselves or they might just be telling another person, right, to kind of get them off their back or whatever it is. But they might honestly even be telling themselves to say like, oh, well, here's the end goal, right? Here's like when, when, like I'll be happy when this is when I'll be happy and this is when I'll be able to let go even though somewhere deep down inside they know that that's never going to happen mm -hmm. yes but then what happens when at 50 they're given a great promotion which they never dreamt of that's the oh, end yeah. of that one yeah <laughs> And I mean, so John, I'm assuming you've, I, I'm going to guess, you've witnessed a lot of sadness then in a lot of these divorce cases where people are just like, wow, like, you know, how do we even get to this point? Oh, yes, deep sadness. I think it's, it's, a, it's the saddest thing that can happen because it's self-inflicted. And, and um, it's very, it's sad because they all miss the point and they, they have failed and they know they've failed. And I'm often aware, you're a therapist, but I'm often aware that if they'd only taken counseling before, things wouldn't have gone wrong. Yeah. How many times do both parties actually take accountability? Oh, sometimes you get a, yes, you can act for the wife of a man who's actually very generous. I had a case, a terrible case, where um, we actually ambushed his, the man's helicopter when he landed and served him with all the papers. Wow. And then my client had said, and this is the old days when you had a video um, camera and it recorded things, was one behind the um, behind the curtains. And she said, listen, darling, just tell me, I don't understand, tell me about our finances. <laughs> so of course he couldn't resist. And we had all, we had a tape of it all. And of course his solicitors, they're, they're the lawyers, didn't know about it. And when I told them, they said, well, we want a copy. And I said, only if we use it. <laughs> and so the man didn't know what he'd said. And we got a fantastic settlement. And then at, <laughs> wow. the end of it, at the end of it, when we, I went, turned up there where they were dividing some furniture or something, he said, you've done a wonderful job for my wife. Please look after her. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Don't let me know if she needs anything. It was actually quite touching. Oh, very interesting. Wow. So there was no sort of ill will to her, well, from him toward her. Um, there might have been, but he got rid of it. I think he realized oh. this was the end of the game and, and she'd done very well. And he was very happy for her that that was it. And she wanted a divorce and he, he, he was divorced. I don't know. I don't know what happened to them afterwards. Yeah. Why do you think, I guess, what are some of the sources of uh, maybe not good divorces, but better divorces, like the ones that actually turn out okay or as best as they can be? What, what do you mean by sources? Well, I mean, like, how, what do you feel like are the necessary sort of ingredients to like a good divorce? Or again, not maybe not a good divorce, but a solid divorce, one that's okay, one that's sort of more amicable. Okay, I think it's when they do untie the knot and not cut it. And that doesn't, that avoids a lot of distress and friction. Mm -hmm. And it's, a, it's an equitable solution. It's a fine, just one. And people always just want this and a bit more, and I'll take the dog, you take the car, whatever. It's it's very sad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it tends to devolve into pettiness. I mean, from I look, I'm not obviously, I don't, I'm not a divorce attorney, um, but it does seem like it goes into pettiness, where it's like it's more about winning than it is about the actual. It seems like a waste of time, but it's more about winning than the actual, like. Um, what would you call them? Then those sort of factors in the divorce, like in terms of, you know, whatever items or, you know, whatever kind of like the sort of materials that they end up splitting up. I don't actually, it's my opinion, but I don't actually think that any, any of the people in those uh, kind of proceedings actually care too much about the valuables, especially when they kind of get into the details of them, like the minute aspects. But when I started in practice, I had a female client who actually insist on taking the plants out of the garden. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Very sad.
Right. And then, right. And then it's like, so does anybody in those cases, right? Is anybody or can they actually reason with a person like that and say like, listen, you're being really petty and you're wasting everyone's time. I should think maybe a psychotherapist could. Be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but that's funny like to actually go to the extent of just like yo you can keep the garden but i'm keeping the plants yes, it's, <laughs> so, it's just it's very sad yeah. and of course it happened a lot with the family dog you know when yeah. you're both dog, and you can't cut a dog in half yeah <laughs> yeah wow and then so just going back to the book john how come you decided to write it well i just i just couldn't understand emotions i i i just realized that I didn't know any more than anybody else about it, even mm -hmm. though I'd written the emotional side. And um, it was very funny because I, my eldest child, who was only 38 on Friday, and mm -hmm. um, he was becoming a teenager. And he thought when he was little that you had to take an exam to become a teenager. Mm -hmm. And I, I have a great friend who's a, a very distinguished psychiatrist. And we thought we'd write a book together about adolescence mm -hmm. and so started to do that he used to give me a, a sort of seminar every month and I'd write it up we were doing great guns and I suddenly realized hang on a moment this applies much more to adults it's that's the big picture and that mm -hmm. got me to think deeply about emotions and the book resulted oh wow and it's so and your first book what was that about no no the, the first book was oh. divorce yeah. Okay, right. And so what was your understanding of emotions then that they were just solely negative? Yes, only negative. And I actually had a little chart at the back so people would tick off when they got rid of one, and which mm -hmm. it worked very well. It was positive thinking writ large with a reach target. And mm -hmm. it, it, it was fine. But it was without the deep understanding that I think um, I, I have now, I hope so, in, in relation to am I large. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, that's really awesome. And it's like, I think I hope a point of pride for you, because first of all, it's a really difficult thing to kind of go back to and say, well, you know, I was wrong. I mean, you had an entire book written about emotions. Um, and then the other thing I would add is that emotions are notoriously difficult to understand. So people still argue in the sort of psychology and psychotherapy, uh, kind of even sociology circles, people argue about emotions, because I think for the most part, most of us have maybe not fully different, but at least slightly different understandings and conceptions of them. So some people people tend to think of like, if you ask the Stoic, right, like a Stoic philosopher, a Stoic philosopher will tell you all of the negative emotions are negative, right? And we've had, I mean, not necessarily arguments, but a little bit of contentious debates about this. And then so you would have a person who's on the Stoic side who would say, well, anytime you're feeling angry, anger is always bad. Uh, anytime you're sad, sadness is always bad, fear, always bad, right? You want to get rid of these emotions. So oh, they would look oh, at it. Hmm? Sorry, I was going to say fear is one wonderful, because it saves yep. us. It's very Anyway, carry on. I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's okay. Right, absolutely, right. So, and but the thing is, so I would actually add on to that that fear can be wonderful, and fear about the times often isn't, right? So the thing is, there are people who have very black and white conceptions of emotions, and they're very popular. Like some of these folks are like really like they have notoriety. They're, maybe not notoriety, but they're they have some level of fame where um, they're academics and people love them and they listen to them. They buy their books, and so the idea is they think of it in terms of again black and white thinking. They think well, these emotions are good and these emotions are bad. So if let's say I'm feeling sad, angry, uh, scared, you know, uh, frustrated, annoyed, right? I now have to kind of turn that to the other end. And now I have to feel happy and sort of jubilated and ecstatic and yada, yada. And so the idea there is that some people think of emotions 
again, in this very sort of dichotomous way. And it's, I would say it's pretty detrimental to kind of our understanding of emotions. But my point in all this is to say that emotions are very nuanced. And I don't think any of us really have a full range understanding of what exactly they are, what in terms of the details, what their purpose is, and how we can kind of best, I guess, cultivate them or utilize them. So in order, you know, for you to be able to kind of go back and say, well, you know, I was wrong about emotions of in kind of my inception and my initial understanding of it. Um, and then kind of, you know, as I went through it, and I started writing another book about about it. I was like, oh, you know, these are the mistakes I made. I think that's a really wonderful thing because I wish honestly some of the academics that, you know, I'm kind of alluding to here, I wish they were able to kind of have a more nuanced understanding and to say, well, you know what, I messed up. Emotions are maybe not as black and white as I made them seem to be. Yeah. But can I just say in terms of negative emotions, remember they're there to save us from peril right. and to preserve our lives. But they're not bad intrinsically at all. And you mentioned fear which is another protection that uh, nature has given us, because when we fear something, I'm not talking about anxiety, which you would recognize as just anticipating a disaster, but actual fear, right. it puts us on, on notice and we adjust our behavior accordingly. Yeah. And so it's terribly important. It may just last for a fraction of a second. It could last for 10 minutes, but it doesn't last very long. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say even sadness can be a good emotion too. So sometimes people legitimately have, so I'm not going to say their lives are terrible, but their lives aren't great. And so, the, you know, they would come to one of our sessions and they would say, well, you know, here's why I'm unhappy here, are all of the things that I wish were much better. And if I were to look at the aggregate of my life, I would say it's more full of sadness than, the, you know, joy and happiness. And that's a good thing, right? Uh, to even be able to acknowledge that, well, you know, I've been feeling really sad, right? It's sort of like a guide to potentially where you need to go and maybe to even reassessing your value system altogether. So, I, so that's why I like the way you kind of conceive of emotions now in this you know, more complex way, where the idea is that, you know, all of these emotions are instilled in us through nature. There's a reason why we have them and they're all to some extent beneficial. Yes, but then if you take grief, which is terribly <laughs> important in life, that's when you've lost a source of love, normally when somebody dies, but it can happen in any relationship or anything else. And people feel grief and they normally feel grief certainly when it's not about a death, until they find someone else to love them. They're never quite the same again, because right. it's a deep shock. And grief is a legitimate emotion. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. It's simply there because we've lost that source of love, which is absolutely essential to our well-being. Yeah. And um, speaking on love, uh, how could we uh, cultivate love in our lives? By being lovable, I think. Uh, what does that mean? <laughs> it means that you act behave in relation to another person in a loving manner and mm -hmm. therefore you are a lovable person if you're just the banker who's just pushing you out the way because he wants to get to the train or something mm -hmm. it's not love. right so give love to receive love essentially that's precisely yeah. actually i you couldn't have put it better i put it in my book in those words <laughs> no i was love. yeah i was steering that way on purpose no i no because <laughs> having read the book i just wanted to uh, for the people listening uh, yes. to sort of outline that for them because they may think, oh, okay, yes, my uh, my emotions are these things I can't control. My uh, nature wants me to survive, right? Uh, not to thrive, right? But then where, you know, where where do you go from there? And then it's by being lovable, by giving love, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I mean, John, I'm sure you see this in your country as well. In our country, it's a little bit different. So to be lovable, and literally some people, like, oh, I say a lot of people, they equate it with being successful. So the idea is, well, I'll be lovable oh, once I'm successful. Yes, yes, that's a, that's another twist, isn't it? I agree. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, do you guys have that same issue there? Sort of that hyper, I guess, rugged individualism? 
Oh, I suppose we do, but yes, I suppose so. It's again, it's the ambitious person who said, am I surviving? Yeah. And he sees it at the end of the tunnel when he knows he should be lovable, but it's not going to happen. Yeah. You trample on, sorry, these people trample on a lot of others on their way to success. Yeah. And so in those divorce proceedings, do you ever find that some people actually went after the divorce or during it, that they actually realize that they've made a mistake in that kind of context or in that sense where oh, um, this, yeah. Yes. That buyer's remorse. I think that's true. Mm-hmm. You know, it's often, you know, like you can go into a, a, a souk and bargain for a carpet and you get it right down and they say, okay, we'll sell it to you for a hundred. You suddenly realize I don't want this carpet. Right. <laughs> that happened occasionally with divorce. Yeah. And people do remarry, you know, they marry each other again. And other oh, wow. people, yes, and other people marry the same sort of person again and have the same mistake. And it's very, very sad. That's a real syndrome that they do choose the same sort of partner. Right. Wait, so when they remarry, how often do they actually re-divorce? Oh, I, it does happen. It does happen. I mean, it didn't it happen with Elizabeth Taylor, I think. She she married somebody twice. Yes, oh, Richard Burton. Yes, oh, I wow. think it does. Yeah. It does. Not yeah, often, I, but it have you actually been through two divorce proceedings from the same couple or for the no. same couple? No, oh, man, that would have been interesting. No, but I did have a very strange divorce where my client was absolutely fabulous woman. She was number four wife and number two was out to destroy her, which was oh. so tragic because she was actually ruining the marriage as it ha- as it was in, in taking place. And then that poor woman was run over and killed the, 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 the fourth wife. Wow. So it was was never an end to the story and and it was really awfully sad what did they ever find out who did it and who orchestrated it or it's just an accident nothing to do with anyone else but you know the former wives can cause a lot of havoc for the later ones wow wow man i mean it's like yeah being a divorce so is there any joy in your field oh yes when you (laughs) find that you've actually delivered them and the children are okay and the client's happy and it seems a just decision and very little damage has been done in relation mm-hmm. to the family unit, then that's a great achievement. And mm-hmm. often, you know, the other side will say, look, I've got a girlfriend now, would you act for her in her divorce and things because you did a good job for mine? Mm-hmm. Or at least against me, <laughs> against me, not for mine, in mine. Yeah, wow. All right, Alan, anything else sort of for John? Any final questions, thoughts, comments before we wrap up? Oh, yes. Um, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, uh, where could we find you? Well, just through the book, really. <laughs> no, oh, I, I believe. Uh, so I do have a uh, Twitter information for you. I believe uh, I'll I'll post it in the in mm-hmm. the description. Uh, I believe when I was looking you up online, I, I saw something like that. Oh, so I'll, post, I'll post any links. Yeah. Also Instagram. Oh, okay. But do you don't. Uh, what about a website? Just curious. Yes, I have a website. Oh, cool. Can you give it to us? This is John D. Bieber at. No, wait a minute, John D. Bieber. Oh dear me! I'm so sorry. If you look it's up okay. Johnny, thank yeah, you yeah, we'll post it. No, 100. That that should not be a problem. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, John. Thank you so much for coming thank on. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. It was fun. Thank you. So absolutely. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Cool. Um, all right, that was cool. All right, so uh, guys, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram, and at Seize underscore Podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the bell. That's right. Mm-hmm. And thank you guys so much for watching. Look forward to the next episode.